It's time for episode 79 of Love That Album podcast. But this month, Morris is going back through his personal archives to present a couple of interviews he did in 2001 with a couple of musical heroes. Morris was extremely excited to get the chance to speak to songwriting hero Marshall Crenshaw. He'd portrayed Buddy Holly and John Lennon in stage shows, so when his debut album came out in 1982, it was no surprise that the spirit of their music influenced his own songwriting. His recent albums have seen him incorporate jazz chord structures within a rock framework. Since this interview was recorded, he has released two full albums as well as some crowdfunded 10-inch vinyl releases. Also, being something of a rock historian, he regularly hosts an excellent show on Radio WFUV called The Bottomless Pit, discussing artists he champions, some famous and some forgotten. Eric Reanimator discusses Swedish garage band The Strollers and their album Falling Right Down. This band would not be at all out of place on a Nuggets compilation discussed with Marshall. So get ready for some great pop discussion coming up on Love That Album. kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Episode number 79 of Love That Album Podcast. My appreciation for you taking the time to download the show. Hope you uh, enjoy what we have to offer. Uh, if you've not heard the program before, basically the format is usually that I'm joined by a, a co-host and we discuss an album and its songwriting techniques and musicianship and all that sort of stuff, all the sort of good stuff that we like to discuss about albums when we're normally sitting with a mate over a glass of beer or a cup of tea or beverage of your choice. I'm doing something a little bit different for this month. I've got two programs coming out, and that's not including Eric Reanimator's own compilation edition special. Um, so things are a little bit busy for me this month to actually sort of go and put together something new. So I'm gone through my own archives. Now, many years ago, I used to do overnight graveyard shifts at a radio station here in Melbourne called 3 R. I used to do them yeah, generally about once a month. And if I persisted and was really quite a good boy, then I'd be privileged to have a summer spot. So our summer here being uh, between December and February. And I generally get uh, Sunday morning shifts where for two or three hours I could present music and shoot the shit pretty much like I do on this podcast. And when I was really, really lucky, I was able to arrange... Uh, an interview that I could present on the program. And I called the program at the time, Come On In My Kitchen, because I like to sort of think I was mixing up all sorts of roots music style ingredients into the one musical melting pot. 
So occasionally I was very privileged to have a number of local guest performers come on and some interviews with overseas performers. It was really very, very exciting getting to speak to musical heroes and find out about their creative process. And so this month I want to present two of the uh, American performers who I got to speak to in my time. These interviews were recorded in 2001 and for episode 79 I'm presenting my interview with Marshall Crenshaw. Uh, a songwriter who I've long had fondness for and admiration for. Now, he went and produced five albums worth of material at Warner Brothers, went and recorded an album for MCA, and all this will be discussed. Uh, and then he went over and uh, recorded some albums independently. Only about a year or so after this interview was recorded, he released a great album called What's in the Bag, which I'm determined I'm going to speak about in detail on Love That Album at some stage, hopefully before the end of this year, because it's really an album I love very, very much. And sort of takes a bit of a tack, a different tack, I should say, from the albums that he'd recorded in his years at Warner Brothers and the one he did with MCA and even the early Razor and Tie albums. It's a lot more laid back, but still that very definable sound that is Marshall Crenshaw still comes out in his songwriting. Uh, in recent times, I think over the last year or two, he's gone and released uh, through crowdfunding uh, a series, I think, of 10-inch EPs with three songs each. And there'll be a new original tune, there'll be a reworking of one of his classic songs, and there'll be a cover version, a favourite cover of his. And if you've gone through his back catalogue, both through the official catalogue and you know stuff that you might find on YouTube at live shows... He's definitely a fan of the cover version, but he's a great songwriter and he takes these songs uh, that he's that he's grown up admiring and he does his own things with them. So uh, really a lot of fun to listen to and uh, I learned so much from uh, our chat, our discussion. I hope that you enjoy this. I'm really quite excited to be bringing it to you. Following the interview, there'll be the usual album I love segment from Eric Reanimator. This time he's bringing around some more pop magic from a band called The Strollers. They're from Sweden, surprise, surprise. They had an album called Falling Right Down and with that Farsifar organ, is that how you pronounce it, Farsifar? I don't know. Anyway, you know that type of organ sound that I'm talking to, that they played in a lot of that classic 60s psychedelia. Uh, they're a 90s band, though, but uh, really their music sounds like it could have been taken right out of the Nuggets box set. And as uh, Joanne already mentioned, uh, the Nuggets uh, albums are actually discussed a little bit with Marshall. So um, it's all thematically related. It's all great. So please Enjoy the rest of the show. I'll be back at the end after Eric's gone and spoken about the strollers to talk about what will be coming up in episode 80 of Love That Album. Meanwhile, on with the show. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. In a world where podcasts last over three hours. You have no concepts of time! Balaban Studios presents A Stinking Paws Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty 
1938. Starring Scotland. Yeah, be prepared for me to have a little bit to say about that one. And Charles. If Leslie Grantham can do it, then so can we. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Stinking Paws Movie Podcast, available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Hotter than any uncurbed passion since last tango in Paris. There's the Facebook group and you can follow us on Twitter, at Stinking Paws. You've never laughed more at sex or a picture about it. And download all our episodes at thestinkingpaws.blogspot.co.uk. Welcome back to Coming in My Kitchen. On the line from uh, New York, we're speaking to Marshall Crenshaw. Uh, good morning, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. It's been a few years since you've apparently talked to anyone from the media in Australia, according to an email that you sent me. Um, basically, what's been the story of the last uh, few years? Well, you know, that was one of the things I wondered about when I heard from you. I thought, I thought, gosh, I wonder what... Of, you know, what of my records is the is the last one that this person has heard? It, uh, in the last five years, I've I've done a couple of records for this label here in New York called Razor and Tie, and they uh, they don't actually have worldwide distribution, but they uh, have good distribution here. At, at, when I did my last major label big budget rock record back in 1991 for MCA Records, after that. After that experience ran its course, I just said, you know, I'm really finished with this kind of thing. And uh, I decided to just try to, uh, you know, find my way into a situation that was less stressful and would just enable me to make the music and have a t- more autonomy while doing it, you know. So I got hooked up with this label, Razor and Tie, and they're very supportive and the, the budgets are good and... uh so I've I've done a couple of records for them, and I'm working on another one now. <clears throat> I had one out in 1999, uh, and the title of the album, the CD was called Number 447. Mm, yeah, we, I think we've uh, was that the one with the fold-up cover? Uh, no, that was that that one was called Miracle of Science. Ah, oh, yes, yes, we saw that on import. Yeah. Yes, well, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned there that you uh, felt the need to go down the more independent path or away from the major labels. Many artists in Australia have had a similar experience where um, they'd uh, been had the fickle finger of fate, as it were, pointed at them from the major labels, went down the independent path, recorded an album in their back shed, have since found far more artistic and even financial prosperity. Do you find that that's uh, definitely the case for you? Yeah, most certainly. I mean... Uh you know, I, I, I mean, as far as the money part of it goes, I mean, I, my jaw used to just drop, at, and and I, you know, you almost had to laugh at, at, at just the amount of money that got pissed away, you know, on some of those records I made for Warner Brothers, you know, and uh, I don't know, it just it just seems much more of a of a sane and uh, it's just a, a better situation for me, and 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 yeah, artistically, artistically and financially, it's been a lot better for me to be on 
an independent label. I saw her Sunday. I'd like to do a little bit of a, a retrospective and just ask a few um, a few questions about some of those early albums. Well, I suppose in particular, like your first CD was re-released last year along with a best of and a bunch of uh, hitherto unheard tracks by the public or, or B-sides and the like. How fondly do you look back on um, those actual songs and uh, the production of those recordings? Well, I was I was really happy with the best of, you know, the, the the compilation CD that Rhino did, when that thing was all mastered and finished and I and I sat down and listened to it, <clears throat> I felt I felt really satisfied and 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 relieved too, you know, because I'm I have sort of like ambivalent feelings about some of the individual albums I did, you know, just remembering some of the circumstances that I went through to make them and so forth. But but the but the way the best of sort of you know played out from beginning to end i just i just thought it was really good rock music you know and uh <clears throat> and so uh at this point in time i have i have a really good feeling about about that period of my career you know now that it's kind of like uh, you know it's it's just sort of encapsulated in that package in, in, in a way that feels good to me you know but uh i mean so you know some of the it's i guess i used to say that it's like every other one of the records that I made would be fun and pleasant, and then, and then every opposite one would be like excruciating, you know. How did the director's cut version, if you want to call it that, of uh, your uh, first album come about? Did Warner's approach you, or did you come to them with the idea? No, that was um, uh, Gary, Gary Stewart and uh, David, I forgot David's last name, but uh, two guys at Rhino Records who just really loved that album and uh, and, it, and had seen a lot of the shows that I did back then. And, you know, they, it was their idea to do the sort of a fleshed out version of the record and uh they wanted to include some live tracks and that was kind of fun for me uh some of the ones that we picked were these covers of uh these obscure r&b tunes that we used to play back then mm -hmm. i grew up in the detroit area and when we first got out <clears throat> on the circuit we used to play this tune by edwin Starr. we played another one by the parliaments and we played this old one by the miracles mm -hmm. And they're fun to listen to. What I realize listening to them now is that I, I can't really sing R&B. <laughs> and, I, and I used to try back then, you know. Uh, so, but it's good memories, you know. Well, little things you say and do Make me want to be with you Rave on, it's a crazy feeling And I know it's got me reeling When you say I love you Well, rave on 
a lot of your earlier years before you got your recording contract doing uh, productions of Beatlemania playing John Lennon and then doing uh, Buddy Holly and La Bamba which is possibly where a lot of Australians may have first caught sight of you do you think being identified with pop icons of that like has uh, helped or hindered your career? Oh boy um, well Beatlemania was good I mean that was really like the first experience I had um, like well in the first place I, I got to New York because of Beatlemania you know I grew up in the midwestern part of the U.S. and prior to getting in Beatlemania I was really just kind of drifting around the country playing in bar bands and you know just uh, looking for something you know and then and then just by a fluke I wound up in this in this Broadway show for a little while and uh, I traveled around the country with that mm. so I mean as a work experience it was really valuable it was great for me to get out of my little backyard and just kind of see other parts of the country and, the, and to meet guys from other parts of the country, you know, meet some of my peers and so forth. That was all really good. And, uh, and I, 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 I get, and La Bamba, I mean, it, it, to me, it was just, it was just really tons of fun. I was like, uh, I was in two films that year, like earlier that year, I was in this other one called Peggy Sue Got Married. You know, those are just good memories and everything. As far as being associated with John Lennon and Buddy Holly, I mean, for me, it's, for me, it's just, I mean, I can't even really question it, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, I've just really uh, always loved those guys, and uh, I don't know, I guess I can't really say whether I think it's hurt me or helped me, I don't know. I've done those two particular things, you know, for me, they were, they were good experiences, and I learned from doing them, you know. Was there any material that you recorded as Buddy Holly for La Bamba that didn't make it to the film? Yeah, actually, we did three songs, um, <clears throat> and, you know, to give the producers a chance to, you know, choose, they, I wanted to give, they asked us to sort of give them some options, you know, and I was in the studio with, um, it was actually Gary Talent and Max Weinberg from the E Street Band, mm. and we recorded That'll Be the Day, because that was the one that they asked for in the script, you know, like, when I read the script, it was supposed to be That'll Be the Day, we did that, and then... The head of Warner Brothers wanted us to do this one called Well All Right, so we did that. And then Gary wanted, it was Gary's idea to do um, Crying, Waiting, Hoping. And I thought, well, okay, they're not going to use that one because Buddy Holly didn't record it during his lifetime and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, well, let's just put these pounding drums on it, you know, and make it sound like uh, the Ramones or something. And <laughs> So we did it, and then that ended up being the one that they liked. Certainly sounds uh, a lot like a surf track, I guess. Yeah. Crying, waiting, hoping you come back. I just can't seem to get you off my mind. I was reading an article in a book called Making Music. The book was put together by George Martin many years ago. Paul Simon wrote an article for that book uh, on songwriting. He was very rigorous and methodical in his description about songwriting. He'd wake up early, uh, write many drafts of songs, do word associations for hours and hours on end, and it would take him months to write a song. Do you go through a similar rigorous process in songwriting, or is it far more spontaneous for you? I'm afraid to say that I do go through that kind of rigorous process with the lyric writing. When I, when I first start composing a song, I can do that in, in an hour, or, you know, it never takes me very long. I, I just... Start, I, I get a groove going, and, you know, I just kind of open myself up to whatever, you know, 
it's you know you just kind of open up yourself emotionally and I can compose really quickly but with the lyric writing I just you know the, that's always been a hang up for me I, I, I'm uh, very meticulous you know maybe overly meticulous but yeah I kind of sweat over the lyrics I, I want the I want the words to work rhythmically above all you know that's really the, my main concern is that the, is that they work musically and that they support the melody and stuff mm. and that they feel right and then the storytelling part of it i mean i just i'm not really naturally a storyteller i have to kind of search and but once i get going on it i i, do, I ask myself a thousand questions about whether it's a good idea or not you know and i'm just like questioning and questioning but then usually when i get it done i'm i'm happy with it you know especially the over the last couple of years i I know that I can do it, you know, like when I first started songwriting, I didn't really understand the process that well, you know, and I'd be sort of fearful about it, <clears throat> And uh, but I, I, I don't have those feelings anymore. I know, I know that once I start, I can do it, but, you know, that I, I, I read something once also about, you know, how terrifying it is to face a blank canvas, and uh, I understand that. I mean, I find songwriting to be kind of daunting, but once you get it done, it's, it's very satisfying, you know. And how long, on average, does it take you to write the number of songs for an album, given that you're that rigorous? I like to give myself, if, I, if, if I'm going to write a song or if somebody's asked me to write a song, I always like to give myself about a week to do it. That's, that seems to be enough time to get the lyrics and everything. So as it stands right now, I have to kind of fit it in with all the other things that I do in my life. You know, like I have a family and I play a lot of gigs and uh, so... Uh, you know, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm trying to do another album now, and I've just I've just barely gotten started, but I'm hoping that I'm going to have it finished by the end of March. Mm. You know, the writing and the recording. Will that be uh, with a full band or acoustically? Ah, well, um, when I go in the studio, I'm going to take a band with me, and uh, for most of the, for most of the record, I want to have a group of us set up in the studio and just bang it all out in a in a couple of days. You know. I really find that probably 90% of the rock and roll records and, and records in general that I like the best are played by live ensembles, you know, and without any uh, shucking and jiving, you know. It's just, it's just basically people in a room. And uh, that's the kind of record I want to make next time. I've, I've, I've done a lot of records where I kind of put on this uh, narcissist control freak <laughs> hat, you know, and, and I, I do a lot of stuff solo. Which is fun. I mean, I got a big ego, so I enjoy all that. But uh, but next time around, I want to do it with a group of people. You know, it seems like very much emulating the uh, recording patterns and maybe of a lot of the uh, the fifties and sixties groups that you've admired. Well, that's true. It, that's definitely true. Mm. Uh, you know, like when I first started making records, I was talking to somebody about this the other night. When I first started making records. I really wanted my records to sound like Chuck Berry records or, or you know, uh, I mean, I, I, wanted, I really wanted them to sound and be like records from the 50s and 60s because I just love the way those records sound, you know. Part of, the, part of the thing that makes me enjoy those records so much is that they sound like they're not labored over. And plus, I like the, the sound of the recording gear from back then, you know, with the tube, the tube equipment and everything. And uh, when I first started making records for Warner Brothers, I, I just wanted to make records that sounded like that, but I didn't know how to do it, you know. Plus, I, I know that they wouldn't have let me either, you know. If I had turned something in and it was in mono and it had tape slap all over everything, they would have said, okay, go back and do it again, you know. But uh, Do you think you'll allow yourself the luxury of recording something in mono for this album in March? 
Yeah, I mean, now I can do anything I want, and I do have a mono machine, too, so, <laughs> so maybe I will, you know? Mm. The morning light was barely in my eyes Then the first thing I realized As soon as I had woken Was the now I just couldn't help but doubt What I thought I was sure about I knew the spell was broken An album of yours that I really love is Life's Too Short, the album that you recorded for MCA. In particular, I think uh, the song Fantastic Planet of Love is uh, probably one of my favourite of your songs. Thank you. What are your memories of that particular album, that one recording for MCA, and how did it come to be that you got a one-album deal for MCA, or did it just turn sour after that? What happened? Gee, let me see. Uh, well, uh, where do I start? Um, the song Fantastic Planet of Love, it was like it was like the first song I ever wrote that had like jazz chords in it, you know, and I and I was when I was writing the song, I was just kind of thinking about uh, this kind of genre of rock music. I guess you call it maybe lounge lounge band rock, <laughs> you know, like with guys like Louis Prima and uh, Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys. I don't know if you ever heard of them, but you know, guys who who kind of started out as uh, lounge lizards who tried to cross over into rock and roll. And I was just goofing around trying to write a song that had that kind of atmosphere to it, that kind of atmosphere to it, you know? Mm. I came up with Fantastic Planet of Love. But anyway, um, when I did that record for MCA, it wasn't it wasn't really MCA. It was a sort of like a custom label that was distributed by MCA. And uh, what happened was I did that one record for them, and uh, and then the guy who sort of had the, the custom label thing, like his relationship with MCA turned very sour because he was a sort of a strange guy and then there was just something in my contract where i could either stay or go and i just said i want to go you know i just had enough of the you know i'm not bitter and i'm not a crybaby either but i just was sick at that point of of having of being lied to basically you know having like people smile at me and tell me fucking and tell me lies i was just tired of that you know so i wanted to get away from all that mm. you know actually though I will say that, you know, like for the five albums I did for Warner Brothers and uh, and for the one that I did for MCA, I did, I, within the system that, that I had to function in, I, I did really have a lot of leeway, you know, and 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 the A&R people that I worked with, you know, they were as sympathetic as they, as they could be, and they were good, you know, like they had their own pressure that they had to deal with. But, you know, the problems I always had was just after a while I realized that it didn't matter how hard I worked, there just came a certain point you know that if the record company didn't really pay attention to the record and guide it through the marketplace that it was that it wasn't going to be a success you know mm. and that, and that was like you know for somebody who makes records it's kind of like you know it's it's a rough pill to swallow you know but uh i mean i've come through all of that you know and i and i i'm in a good i've been in a really good kind of work situation for the past few years and i'm i'm comfortable with the way my career is now but i did go through a lot of changes emotionally back then when I was with Warner Brothers and MCA. The way you smile, even when heartbreak is closing in around you. Girl, you know that that's one thing I ought to learn how to do. Won't you hear my plea? Come by and see me. Cause every time you smile, you make my world a fantastic planet of love. Your latest album, I Suffer For My Art, and now it's your turn, I suppose. Uh, what you've just said pretty much answers how the album was named. 
Oh, yeah, well, you know, it's kind of, and it's tongue-in-cheek, you know, it's yes. supposed to be humorous, you know. Mm. Tell us a little about this uh, new live CD. Have you always sort of wanted to uh, record an acoustic album? And in fact, in previous years, have you been uh, performing much acoustically? No, you know, I just started doing it uh, about a year ago in the spring. And, uh, you know, I, I was I was like, I was afraid to do it for a long time. It just seemed kind of like it would be kind of lonely up there, you know. But then uh, a guy in upstate New York who owns a jazz club, he called me up and asked me to come and play solo at his club and i just thought well god you know maybe now's the time to really sit down and and work on this and and kind of rise to the challenge you know so i did that and then i went and played the gig and it was like i just kind of got this feeling of uh empowerment or something you know just knowing that i could stand alone on a stage and 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 make people feel something you know just without having to blow them away with amplifiers and stuff you know it was uh it was really cool to discover that, so I just kind of proceeded to do it that way. And now, and now I'm like, I'm more. I'm, I've got some dates coming up with a band over the next couple months, but I'm just like, I'm very comfortable playing by myself now, or, or maybe just with one other musician, you know, like a acoustic bass or something. But as far as the live CD goes, um, it was you know the, like a record company that approached me and asked me to do it, you know. And it was their idea to do it at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, a place where I used to play many times back in the 80s. Mm. So we just set up and did it. I mean, the record is is uh, very straightforward. It's 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 really just a gig captured on tape without any post-production uh, trickery of any kind, you know. And uh, so it's good in that way. Like it's it's just it just it is what it is, you know. Uh, does much of your uh, material present itself to you as uh, playable in an acoustic format, or? Or do you think that there's a lot of stuff that will always require the adrenaline rush of uh, the full-on band? At this point, I'd say no. I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I sort of went through all the songs I have and and tried to pick the ones that I thought would stand alone well, you know. And, uh, you know, you, you just really hear the songs and and hear what the substance of the songs is, you know, when they're laid bare like that. And, and I think it's cool. It works good. Mm. You're mine. Oh, you're my favorite waste of time Girl, you're mine You're my favorite waste of time And here I am Playing daydreaming fool again My favorite game Yeah, you are the one Who's got my head in the clouds above You're the one I love Yeah, you're mine You're my favorite waste of time. Very recently, I'd uh, caught up with your out-of-print book, Hollywood Rock, Thank Goodness for Public Libraries. Have you always had a passion for film? Uh, sure, yeah, definitely. Um, Were there no other books on, that dealt with the subject? Oh, I should probably say for the listeners, the whole uh, concept behind the book, it was, a, I suppose, an encyclopedic guide to rock and roll movies with reviews on um, content and music and... An attitude. It's, uh, I suppose, for its time, fairly comprehensive in how much is included. Yeah, I mean, our intent was to was to catalog and describe and see. Also, you know, we wanted to make sure that we saw the films. We wanted to deal with every single rock and roll movie ever made, or mm. every rock and roll related movie ever made, and uh, that proved to be impossible. I mean, there were just like a couple thousand of them that we were able to 
just sort of like determined that had existed or existed, you know, but we couldn't find all of them. One of the ones we couldn't find was a, speaking of Australia, was a, uh, I guess there was a 60-minute film starring the Easy Beats back in the 60s, and we looked high and low for that, contacted the producer and Albert Music and all that, you know, we just, nobody could find that film, you know, which is a big disappointment. Yeah, you mentioned that in the forward. I was going to ask if, uh, since the book's publication, uh, anyone has come to you and said, oh, we found it. Not that one. You know, some of the other ones that we couldn't find have kind of surfaced, but, like, people are still looking for that film, you know, like, somewhere in the world, maybe on, on a shelf somewhere is a print of it, but nobody's got it, you know. <laughs> are you planning on uh, doing an update of the book? Uh, I'd like to. Uh, it's like, uh, it's kind of in the hands of, of somebody else so it's like the guy who approached me about doing it is a guy named david rebel a book packager and uh i haven't had any contact with him lately but uh i mean we certainly could there have been a lot that have come out since we did the book but it's a good book you know it's like there's a lot of good humor in the book and uh information about different things you know because whenever somebody reviewed the film they also had to sort of uh place it in context you know and and describe you know what the circumstances surrounding the film and, and the time that it was made in and so forth you know so it's it's a i think it's a really interesting book did you have uh, much trouble finding as many willing accomplices as you did to review all those films no we, there was about 30 other people involved in the book and they were all you know like enthusiastic participants you know since it's been about seven years or so since the book's publication what uh, rock and roll films, if any, of the last uh, seven years have impressed you, and I suppose at the counter end of the scale, which ones have completely depressed you? Uh, well, I, I have to confess I haven't seen that many. Ah, right. Down here, it's a lot of films relating to rock music don't really seem to do uh, terribly well at the box office, uh, which is which strikes me as quite odd, considering that a lot of people like to go out to gigs and you know heaps of people go out and buy CDs, but is it the same over there? And if so, why do you think that it is that rock and roll film doesn't inspire you know as many people to go watch it as say you know the new Harry Potter film? Well, I don't know. Uh, I really have no idea, but I mean it's true. I mean uh, they do kind of. I mean, look at the there was one with Mariah Carey. Well, that hardly qualifies as rock and roll, surely. <laughs> I know it's pop music. It might be. It might be interesting to see it now. I mean, if it's, you know, sometimes it's fun to watch bad films. But anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know why it is. I guess the kids just kind of change their minds about the the kids change their minds about her. I don't know why. Walk hard, hard down life's rocky road. My creed, my code. Been scorned and slandered and ridiculed too. Had to struggle every day my whole life through. See my share. I'm, I'm going to uh, ask you to put on your uh, rock and roll historian hat here, or, or your critic's hat, because. Uh, from uh, doing, I suppose, my little bit of research before this interview, it, it sort of struck me that you're something of an archivist and something of a rock and roll historian, and you've written a myriad of articles yourself. I read that you believe that the classic age of rock, I suppose, where, where a lot of people might agree, was the mid-60s, specifically you said 65 through to 67, although other eras also have had great artists. Do you believe, though, that rock as an entity 
achieves greatness when it's working to kick the asses of the establishment or, or just work as an entertainment medium? Well, first of all, you know, part of the reason why I point to that particular time period and, and, and have so much regard for it and so much affection for it is, is just because of the age that I am. You know, I just happened to be really uh, young and just and really open to what was going on mm. at that moment, you know. And uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think there, you know, there have been other good periods, and 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 that right now there are a lot of good artists out there, you know, in the mainstream and and elsewhere, you know. But I was just really paying, I was paying really serious attention constantly to rock and roll music when I was a kid. So, I, so when somebody asks me, you know, about my preferences or or you know what I think are the high points, I, I just happen to choose those years because you know it's partly nostalgia. But anyway. Uh, well, yeah, I think that uh, that rock music has achieved greatness. Greatness when it's well. In the let me see, where do I start with this? In the first place, you know, rock and roll. Partly, what it was about here in America was a uh, crossing of cultures. You know, between uh, black and white. And back in the '50s, that was like a real uh, dangerous thing to do. Even you know, I may be like a Pollyanna about this or something, but I, I mean, I've come to believe that a lot of the guys like Buddy Holly. Alan Freed and and a lot of the guys around then were were doing were doing what they did, and they were conscious about it. You know, they knew that they were challenging taboos and like I really think Buddy Holly, for instance, you know, like the, I really believe that he hated racism, you know, and he wanted to take a stand against it, and he did take a stand against it. You know, like coming from a place like Lubbock, Texas, you know, it was like you could really get hurt doing the stuff that that he did back then. So that was great. That was like you know, like so I guess. Right from the start, in that way, rock rock music was anti-establishment because it challenged the, you know, the racist norms of of American society back then, and that was a great thing. You know, I, I kind of uh, it makes me love the music, real, realizing that it stood for something like that at one time. You know, sort of continuing on this theme, I read where uh, there's going to be an imminent release, or maybe it's already been released, of a punk music greatest 100 hits, I suppose box set, probably released in a similar vein to. Uh, the Rhino Nuggets box set of a couple of years back. And it almost seems to me that nostalgia is the antithesis to what punk either of the American or the British variety was supposed to have stood for. Do you think it's inevitable that any revolutionary art or art form or music style ends up becoming safe and nostalgic? Uh, yeah, I guess so, sure. I still don't know how safe punk rock is. I, um, <laughs> but it, yeah, it seems to have kind of remained... Uh, you know, sort of like uh, preserved in amber or something, you know, like, you know, the guys that you see walking around now who are sporting all that kind of gear, you know, they look, I mean, it could be, it could be 20 years ago and they look the same, but anyway. Well, there's still, you know, you can still use it as a vehicle, you know, it, it just depends on, it just depends on who's doing it and what they're doing with it, you know. It never bothers me if somebody takes an old form or an old image and, and, and dusts it off and reuses it, you know, as long as they're doing it in an interesting way and there's some depth to what they're trying to say or if there's some kind of, you know, if they're doing it in an interesting way. I don't mind if it's some, if it's familiar in some way. In fact, I kind of like that, you know. Mm. I like to see familiar things reappear, but only, again, only if, only if the, per, the people that are doing it are, are doing something cool with it, you know. We'd like to open the acoustic portion of the program with a song by one of our favorite groups, the Ramones. This actually happened to me once. She went away for the holidays, said she was going 
Nuggets box set. Oh God, I loved it. You know, I mean, to me, that's like that's like, like desert island stuff. Those records, you know, just uh, you know, just, I mean, those records, they're just like uh, there's no bullshit to them at all. You know, they're just so pure and uh, you know, they just are just there. You know, there's just such an immediacy and uh, energy to the to that stuff. Yeah, the Nuggets box set. I mean, when when the original Nuggets album came out in 1974 or whatever it was, I just I, I was crazy over it, you know. Mm. And uh, I mean, the best thing I can say about the box set is that they took that original two LP thing and they and they kept the rest of it to the same standard, you know. And it's it's like it's just great all the way through. Mm. Would you uh, have personally liked to have been asked by Rhino to put together a similar sort of box? No, I mean they did a good job. They, they didn't they didn't need any help from me on that. I mean, I have a a bootleg record that came out in the 80s of uh, all Detroit area kind of garage rock. It wouldn't be called Michigan Nuggets, would it? Yeah, do you have it? I've been made aware of it. Yeah, I'd, I'd desperately like to find a copy myself. Oh, yeah, because I have it, and I I love it, and I remember most of those records from local radio and so forth. And, uh, yeah, you know, if, if, if I had been doing the Nuggets album, I, I would have put more of those on. But they did include quite a few, you know. I mean, they really did give Detroit its props, I thought. So, uh, no, I can't, I can't complain at all about the Nuggets box set. Farmer John, yeah. I'm in love with your daughter. you're listening to now? Jeez, what am I listening to now? I gather you've become something of a Bill Fussell fan. Oh yeah, I'm a huge fan of his, and uh, I have quite a few records of, of his, and, and you know, I have other people's records that he's played on, like a, a really great Don Byron record, and uh, there's a Ginger Baker record I really like that he played on, and mm. oh yeah, he just plays, he just plays beautiful music, you know, I really dig him. Uh, you know, like I have to say, the last thing that I got really excited about, and then I went out and bought, was a, a CD. Well, it's it's pieces by this composer named David Amram, and uh, one of the things on it was a uh, there was a, a composition called uh, Variations on a Theme, Red River Valley, which is an old American folk song you probably know. Mm. And uh, I heard this on the radio, just this beautifully orchestrated. Oh, you know, it was just it just sounded like. Like it came from heaven or something, you know. So I had to go out and get that. As far as rock and pop music goes, I, bu- I you know, I bought the last album by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, there was a record by Iggy Pop a couple of years ago called Avenue B that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, cons- I, I, I only kind of consume that stuff on a sporadic type basis. But oh yeah, I know. Uh, sorry, it took me a minute to think, but. Uh, I was in Japan in September, and uh, 
a music magazine asked me to get like a dozen CDs and review them, you know. And so a couple of the ones I wanted to pick up, I, I was curious about a couple of uh, R&B CDs. Like I wanted to hear the, the newest one by Mary J. Blige. And uh, I got that, and I also wanted to get the new Macy Gray CD. Uh-huh. I listened to both of those and really loved them. I saw Mary J. Blige on TV about six months ago on a on a program about Aretha Franklin, and Mary sang one of Aretha's tunes, and she just sang it, you know, beautifully. And, and uh, I was really moved, so I wanted to hear more of her stuff. Mm. I liked it okay. You know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of contemporary R&B, but, but when it's good, it's really good. You know, like the Macy Gray thing is really good. I got an Erica Badu CD a while ago. I like that. So, I don't know. Just Sounds very eclectic. Yeah, that's kind of how it is for me. Well, look, many thanks to you, uh, uh, Marshall, for uh, giving the time to speak to us on the program. Wish you all the best of success. I really appreciate your interest, you know. It's nice to hear from you. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. about some albums that I've had on deck for a while to talk about but have not been able to fit into one of the regular episodes. This time around we're going back to Sweden, which I know shocks everyone, but we're going to be talking about a garage rock revival band called The Strollers and their album from 1995, Falling Right Down, issued on Low Impact Records. This was, for me, one of the first times that I really heard the explicit garage revival sound going on in the 90s. Sure, there had been some in the 80s that I didn't necessarily pick up on, but uh, by the time that this album came out, I was 
pretty enmeshed in exploring the uh, music of the past and seeing how people were reinventing that music for their uh, contemporary setting and this is pretty faithful when it comes to a recreation of that 60s Farquharson driven sound. So nothing great as far as you know pushing the boundaries or mixing anything with something that didn't come before. There's maybe a little bit more of the punk uh, high energy rock and roll energy going on but overall it's just a very solid album of 60s style pop Farfisa driven tunes. Let's take a listen. heartbreak, cheating, loneliness, all that, yeah, I guess typical rock and roll stuff. There's a darkness, though, to this that I, I kind of like and definitely identified with at the time. What this record reminds me of more than anything is my favorite 60s garage rock band, The Music Machine. It's not just the Farfisa, there's, there's also that, that kind of haunted resignation that's uh, underpinning the song. You can definitely hear it. 
And yeah, after a while that's going to get tiresome, but I think that the, uh, the record is just long enough and explores the topic just well enough to, uh, to not become taxing on your tolerance for that topic or that mood. It's a great poppy sounding record as well. You can hear it in the energy, you can hear it in that, definitely the farfaza, but also the fuzz of the guitars. Uh, the Strollers did make another record after this called uh, Captain My Own Ship, which I guess in some ways is probably a, hey, this was our, you know, teenage, early 20s, I don't know how to deal with my emotions record, and that was the I need to get on with my life record. At some point after the uh, Captain My Own Ship record, they uh, broke up and kind of reformed as a band called the Maharajas, which I didn't necessarily find quite as interesting, but their stuff is out there if you want to find it. Once again, that is the Strollers Falling Right Down record from Sweden, mid-90s. You know, I'm a mark for this stuff. I guess uh, I just have to uh, face the fact that that was when I was in that time and place. And uh, just one correction, according to my uh, CD, this actually came out in 1999. Uh, I read some bad information. That's shame on me. I'm not going to go back and edit it out, though. So, anyway, we're going to leave with the first song I ever heard off of this from the Swedish Sins compilation. But it's also on this record. It's called Lies. And this is Derek Raymater. Enjoy your summer, and I will catch you next time. And as the sun sets in the west, we finish off another episode of Love That Album podcast. I really hope that you've enjoyed listening to the interview that I did with Marshall Crenshaw 14 years back. Gosh, it's such a long time, but he's done a lot of stuff in the interim. Go search his music out. If you're familiar with his work, then you already know what a great pop songwriter he is. And just go and find out some of those albums beyond the first couple of Warner Brothers that he's most well known for. He's written a lot of really terrific songs. We spoke about the film Walk Hard in the See Here podcast. He wrote the title song for that. And uh, you really should just give him a bit of a try. If you've uh, not listened to him for a while, but you've been a fan previously, then go dig out those albums. They're really well worth your time. If you've not heard him before, then, as they say, 
do yourself a favor and uh, get into it. And also many thanks to Eric Reanimator for another excellent Album I Love segment. He'll be back later in the month for episode 80 of Love That Album with another Album I Love segment, but he'll also be doing uh, maybe a week from now you'll hear his latest Love That Album compilation edition episode. What will he be presenting? At this time of this recording, I don't know what, but it's bound to be something wonderful. So uh, many thanks if you wish to get in touch with me. The contact details were announced by Joanne at the beginning of the show. So please go back and have a listen. Uh, Join the Facebook page, send me an email, anything that you like. And I'd love to hear from you. Uh, With that said and done, be nice to each other. Read some great books, listen to some great music, watch some great movies. Anything that keeps you happy. Uh, Just be nice about it. And we'll see you later on in the month with some more Love That Album. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.